Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. Today we're embarking on a journey through the Gospel of John, and we are going to be looking at one of the most powerful short passages in all of literature, the prologue to the Gospel of John. Today we are in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. This is the passage that is known as the prologue to the Gospel of John. To me, that's kind of an underwhelming title. It so understates what this is. This is the prologue not for just merely this gospel. This is the prologue for Christianity. This is the prologue for our salvation. I'm reading here from the English Standard Version. You can follow along in your Bible, whatever version you have. I think uh, you can probably follow along. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to witness about the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right, the power, to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. All right, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. John is very conscious of the fact that with these words he is calling our attention to the very first words of the Bible. He is conscious of that. What are the first words of the Bible? Remember? In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. John is very conscious of that when he writes these words. He echoes those words from Genesis and points out that before those words, the priority of truth is this. In the beginning, before God spoke the world into existence, before God spoke all of creation into existence, there was the Word with Him who spoke that into existence. John is aware of what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 8, that wisdom dwelt with God in the beginning and was with God at the beginning when God laid the foundations of the world. 
He is aware of so many other things. He has these things in mind, and what comes proceeds from years of thought and prayer and experience and walking and living and reflecting on his own life, on the presence of Jesus the Christ, who had risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, and poured out his own spirit upon his people, and had empowered and gifted and authorized his apostles to walk in his name. He knows, John knows, that there are other gospels that have been written and that the sayings and deeds of Jesus had been promulgated throughout the Roman Empire. And John knew that people knew that there, were, that there was Jesus. They knew that there were facts, and that even people who didn't believe in Jesus knew facts about his life. And many of them were trying to refute those facts. Not, John is not writing, remember, in order to inform us about the life of Jesus. He's writing to inform us about who Jesus is. And that's what we've got to always remember. He says, there are a lot of things I could have written about Jesus, and if you tried to write everything about Jesus that could be written, all that he said and did, the whole world wouldn't hold the books that could be written about him. So no, I'm not writing these things, says John, for a very specific... Uh, I'm writing these things, says John, for a very specific purpose. I'm writing these things so that you might believe in him, and that by believing in him, you will have life forever. And so with this, he tells us he's wanting to know, he's wanting us to know who Jesus is. So he begins by saying, in the beginning was the word. And when he says that, he's choosing a word that comes out of Greek philosophy. The word is logos. Now, I'm going to be using some Greek terms from time to time. I don't want to overdo that, and I'm not trying to impress you. I'm just wanting to make sure that you understand what's going on here in these words. He's using this word that comes out of Greek philosophy. The word is logos. It means word. It's a word that has been brought into the Jewish world through a Jewish philosopher named Philo, who brought in this word, logos, and associated it with something that is deeply embedded in the Old Testament. Davar Yahweh, the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is inseparable from the Lord. This is what's in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord represents who the Lord is. It's more than simply the inscripturated word. It's more than simply the written down word. It is more than merely the spoken word. The word of the Lord is really who he is. Matter of fact, let's go a little further down the passage. John speaks of those who believed in his name. He's got that concept, that Old Testament concept of the name of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the name of the Lord. Just, those are very two similar things in the Old Testament. The name of the Lord is who the Lord is. Now, the word of the Lord, the word of God is the expression, the absolute perfect expression of who God is. It is an expression that is so perfect that it is, in fact, God himself. In the beginning was the Lagos, and the Lagos was with God, and the Lagos was God. Now let's look at that preposition with. He was with God. That's not the usual Greek word for with. The most common Greek word, the most common word in New Testament Greek, you know, in Greek has lots of prepositions, just like English does, just like every language does. There are a lot of different prepositions, 
So let's look at that preposition with. There are many... There, okay, there's a general term for with. That's the word meta. That's the one that's usually used. Most of the times when you see the word with in the New Testament, it's the word meta. We've got that word brought into several English words as a prefix. Metamorphosis, metaphysics, metaphor. Meta, with. But that's not the word that's used here when it says the word was with God. That's the ordinary word for with, but that's not the word that's used here. There's another word less commonly translated with, and which is also a word that we've got as a prefix in several English words. Para. It's the Greek uh, prefix or the Greek preposition that means alongside or beside. But that's not the one that's used here. It's not merely with as being in, or in the same place around the same time. It's not merely the word with meaning alongside. It's not the word... Uh, it's also not the word soon which means together with. It's the word pros. He is with God. The word pros, it means toward. What that means is there is a reciprocal relationship between God and the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was toward God. We can't possibly understand or comprehend what that reciprocal relationship is. But John does want us to think about it. Because it is a word, because it's a word, it's rational, it is an expression, it means something. We can't get into everything that it could possibly mean in these few minutes that we have together, but in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And then, now, then the Jehovah's Witnesses will come along, okay? You might have met some of these folks. They'll come along and they'll tell you, you know, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, and they have a little knowledge of Greek. I love to Greek out, get out of Greek New Testament with Jehovah's Witnesses, and it just blows their mind. So they come to this passage, the Word was God. And so they have a little bit of knowledge of Greek, and they want to try to uh, tell us that this passage doesn't mean what it plainly says. Now, in order to make sure that we have no ambivalence and ambiguity about what John is talking about, it says, is he talking about somebody who's separate, who has a separate existence from God? No. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was toward God, and the Word was God. And the Jehovah's Witnesses will say, well, no, no, the Word God there is without the article. It is without the definite article. You see, in Greek, they do not have the indefinite article, A. If, if you just have, most of the time in Greek, if uh, you just simply have a noun by itself, you don't have it indicated as you do in English with the indefinite article, A. So they say the word God is there without the article, and, if you, and you have to have the definite article before the word God if it's going to be God with a capital G. But in Greek, it has to say the God, or else it's just talking about gods in general. God with a little g. But since there's no definite article, since it doesn't say the word was the God, it should be translated, the word was a God. Okay, well, first of all, that's 
goes against everything else that's spoken of everywhere else in the Bible. How many gods are there? There is one God. There is one God. In Titus it says, For there is one mediator between, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. This is all the, Jesus believed in one God. He taught that there is one God. He never taught that there were many gods. He taught that there is one God. He did use a parable one time uh, in which some will get confused about and uh, think that he was teaching, he was not teaching that there were many gods in that passage, but he was using that to, to trip up those who were trying to trip up him. Here's the point. Every, it, to say that Jesus was a God means that there's more than one God, and that goes against everything else in the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. So if Jesus was God, that was a God, that would make him another God. But there's only one God. But now let's look, actually look at the Greek together. Check out the sentence construction. I want to get uh, my Greek Bible and show it to you. Okay. Now this, I know, if you don't read Greek, this won't mean anything. I just want you to see what it is and where it is. It's right there. Okay. I'm going to read this to you directly. I'm going to give you a literal translation from the Greek. First of all, I'm going to read the Greek words. Anarche en halagas, kai halagas hen prostantheon, kai theos hen halagas. Kai theos hen halagas. Not kai halagas hen theos. It's not the Word was with God, but it's not the Word was God, it is God was the Word. Now that's a Hebraic expression. Taking, putting the subject, putting the predicate and then the subject. But here's the point. The way Paul, John had already expressed that, it would have been redundant for him to use the definite article. He didn't need to. It would have been redundant and awkward in that construction. He didn't need to say, the God was the Word. He simply said, God is the Word. That's the literal construction. So the translation, the Word was God, is accurate and correct. What I'm pointing out, there is no it's not ambiguous in Greek. There's not a there is a distinctiveness of identity within the Godhead between God and the Word, but there is not a difference of existence. There is not a separability of their existence. Now I'm going to go on. I'll come back to this a little bit later, but I'm, I'm going to go on right now. Verses two and three. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, if there's anything that exists, it exists through the word. And it says, in him was life. Word is not just an abstraction. Word is living. And the word not only lives in himself, but exudes and passes on and communicates his life. In him was life, and the life was the light 
there's another theme, light versus darkness. You're going to see that theme interplay throughout the Gospel of John. John is saying, this is the story I'm going to tell. It's all about the Word and the creation and life and light. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You're going to see different translations for that. I believe the New International says darkness has not understood it. That's a conceivable translation. The King James Version is the most literal one. Uh, the light comprehended it not. There are two thoughts embedded in the idea that the darkness does not comprehend the light. In one sense you can say, well, the darkness does, just doesn't get it. The darkness can't understand light. Darkness doesn't have any terminology, doesn't have any vocabulary for light, doesn't have a way to even perceive the light. Well, that's, you've got that element uh, there. But you've also got the idea of conflict between light and darkness, and that's what the English Standard Version picks up. The conflict between light and darkness. Darkness is unalterably opposed to the light, but it can't swallow it up. The light shines in the darkness, and it doesn't matter what the darkness does to try to stop it. The light still shines. The light will always shine. Now that's a good word written to a community which was oppressed and hemmed in and persecuted the community to which John wrote. And it's also, by the way, a good word for a missionary community today. A community that sees that we're so small, we're so few. How are we to fill the commission to get this word out to the whole world? It's not about you just shine the light, the light will shine in the darkness. The darkness can't do a thing about it. Well, we'll save our discussion about these words about a man whose name was John for next week. John the Baptist was an important figure, and there's more about him later in this chapter, so we'll hold off on that for now, except to say that John himself acknowledged that he was not the light. So we move on to verses 9 through 12. There was one Jesus who was the true light, which enlightens everyone, and he was coming into the world. Now that's another thing that's brought up throughout, not just in the Gospel of John, but Paul and Peter, and all the New Testament as well, that Jesus, he's not from here. He's not native to this world. He came into the world. His origin is not of this world. He came into the world from elsewhere. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Irony. Tragic irony. He came into the world, the world was made through him, but the world did not recognize him. He came to his own people, the people he had chosen for himself. His people didn't recognize him. Tragedy of tragedies. They did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become the children of God. That's what the English Standard says. That's what the New International says. That's what most modern translations have. And it's a true and accurate translation. He gave the right. But to me, it's a, it's a weak word compared to the word that, uh, the Greek word that John uses. King James says to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, the children of God, that's closer, I think, to the meaning, but it's not power as in the ability to do. It's power as in the authority to take. To those who believe, Christ gave the authority to become both in title and in fact the children of God. To as many as believed on His name, there's that issue of name, the identity, 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but were born of God. This is God's operation, not a human operation that makes this happen. What can I do to be born again, somebody asks. Well, you can't do anything. What you can do is believe in the word that you, has been preached to you and believe in the one whom he has sent. God is the one who does the operation. Now verse 14, again a theologically powerful verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is not flesh in the moral sense of the word. This is flesh in the human sense of the word, the way Isaiah uses the word, all flesh is grass. The grass fades, the flower falls, but the word of our God shall stand forever. This is flesh in the human sense. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there is a rich word. The NIV has a nice wording here. He made his dwelling with us. But you know, the only place that this word dwell is used in the New Testament besides here is in the book of Revelation. Really. And there in the book of Revelation, it's used for beings who dwell with God in heaven. It, it, really, it really is the word that means to pitch one's tent, to tabernacle, and to camp. The memory is, again, of something in the law. Think back, if you know about the Old Testament, you know about the book of Exodus. There's something there that, how did God come and dwell among his people in the wilderness? He tabernacled with them. He had them build a tent where he could come and meet with them. He tabernacled with them. And so that the presence of God among his people was shown in the tabernacle. And the word that's used for dwell here is related to the word for tabernacle. He dwelt among them. He tabernacled with them. The word became flesh. He tabernacled among us. And we have seen it with our own eyes. The glory, His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now skip down to verse 16. From His fullness we have all received. John doesn't use that word fullness a lot. That's one of those words that shows up in the prologue that's not common in the gospel. But he uses it here and it's significant. You've heard of Gnosticism, haven't you? It's an ancient movement that tried to import foreign philosophies into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, the Gnostics would take that word fullness and they would distort it. The Gnostics would talk about the fullness as referring to the many levels of God. The word is pleroma. And they would take that word fullness, pleroma, and distort it and talk about many levels of God and the many levels of divinity that you have to go up and go through to achieve in order you reach the ultimate, the fullness, you know, and so forth. And that's not what John's talking about here. There is fullness in Christ. There's emptiness in us, but fullness in Him. And of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, one grace after another. It's not just God gives you grace one time and then you're on your own. It's grace upon grace. It keeps coming. And there's no need that we have for which he does not have greater grace. 
for the law was given through Moses. Moses had his place. And this is these words are not putting down Moses at all. It's to make it's not to make surely it's not to make Moses the enemy of Christ. It's the opposite. The law was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's a greater revelation that's come down. What the law pointed toward, Jesus Christ has brought. And that's it. That's the definition right there of the difference between the Old and the New Testament in a nutshell, right in one verse. We go on to verse 18. Now verse 18 seems a little difficult at first and there are some variations in how it's translated. Here's what the English Standard Version says. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Let me read that again. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Okay? First, no one has ever seen God. Now that's easy enough. That's just a given. It's also a good sound doctrine, by the way. Anyone who tries to tell you that God is someone you can literally see, either as a false teacher or as somebody who has subscribed to a false teacher's doctrine. Nobody has seen God. Now Moses said, show me your glory, and God says, I'll show you indirectly, but you couldn't handle it if I showed you directly. No one has seen God at any time. But now let's look at the second part. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Look at the, if you've got a, uh, an ESV Bible there with you, you can look at the footnotes and you can see that there are, uh, that's not the only possible translation. They were, the ESV uh, translators were debating on how to translate that verse. And so they said, okay, here's another way you could translate it. The only one who is God has made Him known. Um, here's how the King James Version reads. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Well, let's look at the first at the word that the King James translates, only begotten. Modern translations say only. Only John uses this particular word. The Greek word is monogenes. This verse is his first use of it. According to the New International Dictionary of Theology, it literally means of a single kind. It is always about Jesus. It always refers to the fact that he is uniquely above all earthly and heavenly beings. It's similar to how Paul calls Jesus God's own son in Romans 8.32 and the firstborn in Romans 8.29 and Colossians 1.15. The other part of the issue here there is that some of the ancient manuscripts have the word son, while other more reliable manuscripts have the word God. Now it seems that some of the ancient scribes couldn't understand this particular word for only being put next to the word God, so they substituted a phrase from chapter 3 instead, which seemed to make more sense to them, only, only son. But it is almost certain that the correct word there is supposed to be God. So how are we to understand it? Here's how the, the Net Bible puts it. No one has ever seen God. The only one. Himself. God. 
who is in closest fellowship with the Father, he has made God known. Let me read that again. No one has ever seen God. The only one, himself God, who is in closest fellowship with the Father, has made him known. We can use this phrase. The only begotten, who is himself God, who is in closest fellowship with the Father, has made God known. So it's identifying Jesus specifically there. In case we haven't gotten it yet, in case we haven't understood the full import of what is in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, let's get it again here. The only one who is God has made God known. He is at the Father's side. He is at the bosom of the Father in the closest relationship. He's the one who was with God in the beginning and through whom all things were made. He has made God known to us. This whole passage is absolutely crucial to the Christian faith. It tells us that everything we know about God we know because of Jesus Christ. It tells us that everything we receive from God is because of Jesus Christ. It tells us that our salvation is entirely connected to our faith in Jesus Christ. You see how important this passage is. Not only for the Christian understanding, but to make the understanding of the gospel known to all those who are in the world. May grace and peace be unto you, my friends. Until next time, the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ be upon you. Amen. This is only the beginning of our journey through the Gospel of John. I hope you'll continue with us through all 35 talks. This is Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for listening.